But if you'd like to be turning to Mark chapter 11, please, page 848, if you're using the church Bibles. That's Mark chapter 11. Well, Jesus has broken cover in chapter 11. He's publicly thrown down the gauntlet, issued a challenge, that is, to the religious establishment. And he's privately shown his followers that the temple is doomed. Like the fig tree, it's all leaves and no fruit. It's under God's curse and will wither from the roots up. But the leaders of the temple, the establishment, are not going to let this pass unchallenged. And so we pick up the story in chapter 11, verse 27. And they, that's uh, Jesus and his group, came to, again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that's the whole shooting match of the establishment, they came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And they're, called, they're talking about the turning over of the tables in the temple precincts of the money changers and the stopping people going through. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe in him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's the rent. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone, is literally the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, in other words, a man of integrity, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow, that's the brother who survives, and raise up offspring for his dead brother. Oh, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? The Sadducees only accepted the books of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we have one simple request 
that you would open our eyes to see wonderful truths about the Lord Jesus and that seeing them would change us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. After that, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. When it comes to making key decisions in life, there is often a moment when the time for questions is over. We've asked all our questions. Now is the time for a decision. Like you think about changing your course at college or something, or deciding whether or not to accept a job offer. Yes, lots of questions, and then comes the moment. You have to make a decision. So it is with Jesus and his identity and authority. There comes a time to stop asking questions and to make a decision about whether or not you're going to follow him as your Lord and your Savior. Not that you never ask any more questions, for a healthy faith is a reflective faith. But following Jesus is more about him asking us the questions than us asking him the questions. So questioning Jesus gives way, if you like, to Jesus questioning. Well, those are our two headings this morning. First, questioning Jesus. Chapter 11, 27 to 12, 34. The issue there at the end of chapter 11 is, is one of authority. Who gave Jesus this authority? Why does he think he can do this? To come into the temple precincts, to turn over the tables, to block the passage of passers-by? Who does he think he is? Well, brilliantly, as we read, Jesus avoids being caught on the hook and in response tells this pointed parable at the beginning of chapter 12 about tenants who refuse to give their landlord the proper rent. Instead, they end up assassinating the landlord's beloved son and so invite their own destruction. Now, a vineyard was a common Old Testament illustration of the people of God. So it's not surprising in verse 12 of chapter 12 we read that the, the religious establishment perceived that Jesus had told the parable against them. I wonder how much they realized of what Jesus was saying in the quote from Psalm 118 in verses 10 and 11. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone the builders rejected, threw away. Now, I don't know if you've ever stood in the middle of a building site, halfway through a building project. If you have, you'll know that everything can look a complete mess. You look around and you wonder about some of the stuff you see lying around. And, and you try to work out, is that that thing over there, is that on its way to the skip? Or is that on its way in and it's going to be made part of the building? Sometimes you, you have no idea. You have to ask the builder. Well, the religious leaders have consigned Jesus to the skip. But God is actually going to, about to take him and place him in the key position in his building project. 
meantime, this final round of questioners continues, and they keep trying to land a punch on Jesus. So chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, we get a, a hot potato political question about paying tax to the hated Roman occupiers. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay tax to them, immediately he loses popular support. And that's the thing that they're frightened of and won't arrest him because of, remember. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay tax to, to the Romans, he'll be immediately reported to them as pernicious and seditious. There had already been a few years earlier some major rebellions, uh, violent rebellions against the Romans because of tax. And once more, Jesus gives a brilliant response. There it is in chapter 12, verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Followers of Jesus must pay their dues to the state and not be rebels. I hope you pay all your taxes if you're a follower of Jesus. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. And yet at the same time, if we follow Jesus, we must pay our dues to God as ruler of all. It's a wonderfully clear principle, isn't it, which guides us right through life as Christians in terms of our relationship with the state and our relationship with God. Although, having said that, sometimes the application of those clear principles is not easy. I mean, we struggled, didn't we, with the pandemic guidelines during the, the pandemic, wanting to submit to Caesar, to the state, as it were, and yet to not fail to submit to God. When we move on to chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, the question moves from being a political one to being a theological one. But it's got the same purpose. They're trying to discredit Jesus and, and make a mockery of his views. Again, Jesus gives a brilliant response, verse 24. As they try to say, isn't it a ridiculous idea that the, the, this woman is going to end up in, in the world to come with seven husbands all vying for her attention? Don't even think about it. There it is in verse 24. Jesus says, you're wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. It's a clean punch. Bang! Smacks them right on the chin, as it were. No, verse 27. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. You should have known this from the Scriptures. The very books that you claim are your Scriptures that you live by, the books of Moses. It's perfectly clear. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said that to Moses when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead. But he says, I'm their God today. How come? Well, because he's the God of the living. They have risen. They're with him. And as a bonus, we get a brief bombshell statement about the nature of marriage. Wakey, wakey. Listen to this. Verse 25. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, there's no marriage in heaven. Have we got that clear? 
Singleness is the heavenly state. Like the angels, they're all single. Are you married? Well, that's a gift from God. Be grateful for it. Well, actually, it's more like a loan than a gift because God is going to take it back one day. So enjoy it while it lasts, but it's not everlasting. God will take it back when one of you dies. Are you single? Well, that is also a gift from God. We read that in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, it's true, God might take it back from you while you're still alive and replace it with marriage, but he might keep you in the company of the angels with one foot already in heaven. It changes your view of marriage and singleness, doesn't it? When you take this on board. Then there's the final question in verses 28 to 32. Now, it feels a a more friendly question, a genuine question. This scribe has heard the disputes and sees that Jesus answers well, verse 28, and asks him which commandment is the most important of all. It was a classic question that, this, that they debated in, over the centuries. And again, we get a, a masterly response, which gives a, gives a definitive summary of the obligations imposed by God on his people in the Old Testament. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wow. It's the simplest of summaries, but the toughest of tasks, isn't it? Has any of you ever got to the end of a day knowing this as Jesus' summary of the law and said, well, that was a good day I've just had your pillow now, your head now resting on your pillow. And you say to yourself, you know, from the moment I woke up this morning to this moment with my head on the pillow, I have loved God with everything I have. And I've loved everybody I've come across as much as I love myself. Have you ever been able to say that? Of a day? I haven't. It's beyond us, isn't it? It's impossible even to begin to love like that without God's supernatural help. Now, the wonderful thing, if, you, if you're a Christian, is to know that you have in your life, living in your life, the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to keep God's commands with increasing compliance, but never perfectly. Now, what matters to God is not external ritual. That becomes very clear in verse 33, doesn't it? When the man replies, um, he has to love God with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So all the temple stuff, the sacrifices and the offerings, they're not as important as what's going on in your heart and mind, your attitude and your actions towards your neighbor. And there's that lovely reply in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder if he'd say that of you this morning. If you're someone here who's not yet really 
turn to the Lord and put your trust in the Lord Jesus. You've not quite yet entered the kingdom with the kingship of Jesus, because that's what the kingdom is about, remember. But maybe God is looking at you and saying of you, do you know you're not far from the kingdom? You're not far from submitting to Jesus' kingship and authority in your life. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to take that final step? Are you going to stop asking your questions of Jesus and allow Jesus to ask the question of you? Where do you stand? Will you submit to me as your Lord and your Savior? That's our second point. It's much briefer. You'll be glad to, to hear. Where we move from questioning Jesus to Jesus questioning. 12, 35 to 44. And Jesus is questioning both belief and behavior. The key question, of course, is what do you believe about Jesus? So in verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, and it's clear from that in verse 38 that his, this is the week before he died, remember, he's spending his time in the temple precincts just teaching, teaching, teaching. Yes, tackled occasionally by these uh, emissaries who try and trip him up, but basically he's, he's just there teaching. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, there's the inspiration of Scripture, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, and he's quoting here Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, this is King David speaking, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David himself calls him Lord, this son of David. So how is it that he's his son as well as his Lord? It's a teaser. The crowd love it. But Jesus is not an entertainer. He's not trying to get the crowd whipped up and laughing at his jokes or something. He's saying that to think of him as just the Messiah, just the son of David, just the, the king of Israel, is not a big enough category. It might be a big step forward to, to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. When we've already seen in Mark's gospel that, the, that Peter and co., Jesus' closest followers, the apostles, have, have realized that Jesus really is the Messiah. But that's not enough says Jesus. It's a step too short. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Well, who is he? Well, we haven't yet got there. We'll get to that in a couple of chapters' time. And Mark, in a sense, like a great writer, is saying, keep reading, and you'll see the answer to this question. Having said that, we've had quite a clue. If you think about the parable of the tenants, whom did the owner finally send? Verse 6 of the previous chapter, a beloved son, my son. Now, I wonder if tomorrow someone asks you about your weekend and, and you, it comes out that you were in church today and that you have this faith in Jesus um, and they want to know a little more about Jesus, what you believe about him. How would you answer that question? Well, they'll be watching you, won't they? 
they'll be watching you as you behave. You, they now realize that you're a Christian, and so they'll be observing your behavior. So, so this, this person, they go to church. They, they hold themselves out as a Christian. Okay, let's, let's watch their lives. Because remember, Jesus doesn't just ask us about our beliefs. Who do you say that I am? Yes, you. He also asks us about our behavior. Does our behavior match our beliefs? It's all very well to be a churchgoer and to say you believe these things, to sing these songs, but Monday to Saturday, how does it affect the way we live? Are we like the great majority of the scribes in Jesus' day, described there in verse 38 in these pretty damning terms? People who like to walk around in long robes and greet, get the greeting in the marketplace, have the best seats in the synagogues, in church, the places of honor at the feast. So when there's a wedding feast, they want to be right there beside the bride and groom. Because all they care about, they may be teachers and interpreters of God's word. That's their job. They're scribes. They teach the Bible. But actually what their life is about is power and influence even though it's dressed up in religious clothing. It's about money. That phrase in verse 40, who devour widows' houses. Now, there's discussion as to what that means, but it could be getting widows to, to give away all their stuff. But actually, it's not going to the cause that they claim. It's going into their own pockets, or at least it's being used for their own benefit. Yet they're telling people, that, oh, you're giving to God. No, you're actually giving to them. And then, on top of it all, they make long prayers. They want to be known as people, oh, wonderful prayers. Yeah, but these are, as Jesus says, for a pretense. This isn't actually how they pray. If you, if you follow them the rest of the week and say, well, how do they pray on their own? Is that how they pray? No. Very different. This is just a show. Is that how we are in our behavior? And then contrast, finally, this final paragraph, verses 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now, these, these offering boxes, apparently there were 13 of them, and they had these great big, they were called the trumpets, because they had this great big, did you remember the days when if you went down a motorway and you got to the toll booth, you had to pay by cash? Do you remember those days? And there was this great big sort of funnel thing that you threw your, well, you tried to throw. Do you ever miss? Get out of the car. It's very embarrassing. You missed, and you had to get out of the car and find your coin and then put it in there. Anyway, um, maybe it was just me that missed. Um, well, they were a bit like this, great big receptacles to receive your money. Uh, we've got offering boxes. You know we don't take a collection here, we, but we do rely upon your giving. <laughs> there are offering boxes just outside the door um, but we forgot to put the trumpets on the top, so apologies for that. Um, I did read somewhere this week that, that some people think that it was actually like a tourist attraction in the temple to go and watch people putting money into these 13 trumpets because it was just so interesting. So they had little seats, apparently. At least someone claims that. Not sure how true that is, but there you go. Did you see that huge gold coin go in? Wow, that must be worth a fortune. They must be rolling in it. 
Who is she? Little bent old woman. Oh my goodness, is that all? Did you see what, just a couple of coppers. That's a bit pathetic, isn't it? Verse 41, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. This is so that the Romans reading this understand how small this is in value. Mark translates it into Roman currency. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, when you realize she's put in all she had to live on. What, what's your response to that? I think a, a fairly natural response is to say, don't be so foolish. Don't, don't, don't put everything in you have to live on. You keep back some for yourself. But no, Jesus says, she put in everything she had to live on. Others had to come and help her, I guess. Now, why is Jesus commenting on people's giving? In our culture, that's so rude, isn't it? You don't comment on, you don't ask people how much they give, you don't ask people how much they earn in our culture. That's considered rude. So you don't ask people how much they give, do you? Yet Jesus is saying, do you know what? How generosity is really important, and it doesn't relate to how much other people give. It relates to how much we keep. How much of what we have as we give, have we given? How much have we kept? And you may be someone who thinks, well, I've got very little to offer God. And Jesus says, just be generous with what you have. God will be delighted, even with a couple of coppers. Well, there comes a time when we need to stop asking questions of Jesus and let Jesus ask questions of us. Are we clear on who he is? The eternal Son of God great David's greater son, fully human, fully God. Are we clear on what it means to follow him? It will profoundly affect our view of ourselves, our position, our power, our praying, our pocket. And if we claim to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have never made a decision which makes others cry out, don't be so foolish, you can't give that much. Then we probably never come to the point of truly understanding who Jesus is and what he demands of us. We may have our questions of Jesus, but it's his questions of us that really matter. Let's pray. After that, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Father, please help us not to be people who put off 
following you or following you wholeheartedly because we're so full of questions that we think you have to answer. May we be people who humbly listen to the questions that you have for us and seek your grace to live in response as you've made clear you want us to. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.